Welcome to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company. Welcome to another Altamimi COP28 podcast. My name is Francis Patelon. I'm a senior counsel in the Riyadh office of Altamimi and a senior accredited mediator here in the Riyadh office. We're delighted to be hosting Dr. Ella Gilbert today for this podcast, which is really going to focus on the science of what's happening with the climate globally. Ella is a polar climate scientist and spends a lot of the time, I know, in, in Antarctica and also a climate presenter. She's based in London, England. Ella's an active climate researcher, regularly appears in the UK and international media to discuss climate change and polar science. She's hosted a number of featured documentaries and podcasts and runs a YouTube channel called Dr. Gilbs, which is where I came across her first. Um, And that YouTube channel aims to distill complex climate science topics into an accessible and digestible format. So I hope that for listeners today, we're going to be able to unpack some of the science of, of climate change. Ella's doctorate was in atmospheric drivers of surface melting on the Larsen Sea ice shelf. That's one of the ice shelves in Antarctica that should be entering people's consciousness in the future because it's one of the places which is at risk because of the climate crisis that we're encountering at the moment. So with that introduction, unless Ella, you want to add something, maybe we can kick straight into it and just tell us what the basics of climate change are. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I suppose the most crucial headlines when it comes to the science of climate change is that we know from multiple different lines of evidence that we have warmed the planet as a whole by around about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the beginning of the pre-industrial period, which is essentially the time before we started kind of changing our climate in earnest. And those multiple lines of evidence come from huge numbers of different sources. Of course, we have direct measurements of temperature from thermometers, but we also have lots of indirect ways of tracking the course of temperature change from things like tree rings or evidence from soils or from a variety of different much older records from from rocks and geological evidence. And temperature, of course, is also only one dimension when it comes to climate change. Temperature across the whole planet has warmed by 1.2 degrees, but we know that there are huge regional variations. So, for example, the Arctic is warming around about four times faster than the rest of the planet. And land areas in general, so all inhabited places on the planet, are warming faster than ocean areas. Whilst we're talking about the oceans, of course, the heat in the the climate system is not just in the atmosphere, although that's where we tend to feel it the most, because of course we live in our atmosphere, but the oceans are also heating up too at the surface, but also much deeper down. And this is a problem for the oceans, for marine life, but also for the climate as a whole. And sea levels, of course, are also rising. Uh, We know that half of the world's population lives pretty close to coastlines. So this is something that's going to become increasingly pressing. It's already a pressing problem 
but it's going to become uh, more of a pressing problem. And then this is before we get on to things like extreme events. You just have to look at the headlines of 2023 to see evidence of how extreme events are impacting people. Things like the wildfires in uh, Maui most recently, but also in Greece, in the North North America, turning the skies of uh, New York City a kind of apocalyptic red earlier this year. We've seen record low sea ice so floating sea ice in the Antarctic this year. We've seen heat waves, we've seen floods. And these aren't just happening in specific places, they're happening all over the world. And all of these different kind of strands of the climate crisis are all evidence of how human activity, most notably from the burning of fossil fuels, is transforming our climate and transforming it for the worse. So I mean, as a a non-scientist, somebody who's nonetheless very, very interested and engaged in these sorts of issues. What I've noticed in the last five years or so in particular is a huge acceleration of of change. I think as you've indicated there in terms of explaining what the basics are, there seems to be a number of different manifestations of this problem occurring in all sorts of different biospheres. And I think the one that I suppose I've been looking at most recently, the University of Maine, have a climate reanalyzer site which is tracking ocean surface temperatures and it really has spiked in the last couple of years you can see that data tracking back to the 1980s mid 1980s and the increase in temperatures there on an average basis seems to be you know getting getting off that kind of magnitude that you've been describing from pre-industrial levels 1.2 or thereabouts and of course we all know that 1.5 is this kind of threshold that's been identified in the Paris Agreement. And it feels very, very much as though we are going to blast through that. It's a question of not if, but when. Is that is that your reading of the situation as regards 1.5? Yes, I think the danger with hard thresholds like 1.5 or 2 degrees, which was the kind of another threshold that's often thrown around, is that they are really, really helpful political targets, but they aren't necessarily hard lines in the sand when it comes to the physical system. I think for every Something that I often come back to is this idea that every fraction of a degree matters and that even if we don't make 1.5, making 1.8 degrees C is still way better than the kind of 2.7 or 2.5 degrees that we're currently on track for. And I think this is something that's also within the most recent uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is this kind of consensus uh, document of where the, the research is from a variety, a huge variety, I should say, of different research. It kind of pulls together all of this understanding from across climate science. I think that's one of the take home messages from their most recent report is that every single fraction of a degree makes a difference and that therefore every action that we take makes a difference. And the danger with thresholds like this is that we tend to fall into binary thinking like before 1.5, good, anything after 1.5, it's basically done. There's no point in trying anymore. But I think that's obviously not the case. Every single increment of warming above 1.5 degrees bears greater risk. And I think this is something that is hard to communicate amongst the general public sometimes. But when we're talking about risk, that kind of does ring true to lots of people. 
the mm. higher that we push the temperatures, the riskier it becomes, the more we are going to transform our climate, the more risk there is of pushing past irreversible tipping point thresholds, which are in the climate system. You know, there are certain kind of uh, systems, once we push them enough by changing our climate, that they are going to be irreversibly changed in, you know, on human timescales at least. And the greater the degree of warming that we enforce, the more likely we are to push past those sorts of tipping points, which is why the one and a half is is originally enshrined in the Paris Agreement, and which is why two degrees is a kind of hard limit on what is considered, in quotes, safe. So these sorts of thresholds, super useful in terms of policymaking and negotiation. But when it comes to the translation into the actual kind of hard physical meaning within climate science, um, I don't know how directly translatable they always are. It's interesting that you characterise those thresholds in that way, because I think there is a debate on at the moment, I perceive, between carbon capture, storage, reuse and net zero. I think there's some growing antagonism towards the net zero movement, if one can call it that. And I suppose from a scientist's perspective, all of the above is required. So carbon capture and storage, if it's scalable, might make a, a big impact, but that shouldn't detain us from engaging in net zero and looking at scope three emissions in particular, um, which is something that we're focusing on as um, legal advisors is, well, how do you embed that in people's contracting? Because that seems to me to be the glue that's going to hold a lot of this together. And it gives gives companies and corporates some actual agency, I suppose, in, in terms of how they approach these issues. And we've discussed on previous podcasts the kind of regulatory risk that people face in terms of reporting on climate, but also the actual physical risks that are going to start manifesting yourselves. Because as you say, most of the population on the planet lives at or near sea level. One thing I'm, I'm quite keen to explore with you as well is all of these systems seem to me to be linked. And I think those linkages are becoming more and more apparent the more we understand the science. But you've spent a lot of your career and your focus on Antarctica, which is a long way from where I'm sat here in Riyadh today in, in, in the deserts of, of Arabia. But why does Antarctica matter? I mean, can you can you give us some insight on why that's so important in this context? Yeah, of course. I mean, for one thing, it may not be quite so far away from in in metaphorical sense, because Antarctica is the largest desert on the planet. And it does feel like it's very far away from all of our kind of lived experience because Pretty much nobody lives in Antarctica. However, it does have these very profound, far-reaching impacts on our weather, on our climate, on our oceans. And of course, it's very crucial when it comes to things like sea level. So Antarctica has, it's huge, it's very cold, and it has this really important role as a kind of refrigerator, if you like, because it keeps our, our climate relatively cool. The Arctic does the same in the Northern Hemisphere, but our polar regions in general help to regulate our climate as a whole. It's also, in Antarctica particularly, very important for ocean circulation because it's so cold. That's where um, a very important part of the ocean circulation system, so ocean currents, are driven. It's a kind of engine, if you like, of global ocean currents and this is really vital as you say there's so many linkages between different parts of the climate whether that's the atmosphere the oceans the land the biosphere things like this 
And they're all, of course, intimately related with each other. And the, the ocean currents influence weather patterns. They influence marine life, ecosystems. They have these kind of cascades of effects that ripple way beyond the Antarctic. And the other thing that they're really important for is holding a huge amount of ice. And of course, if ice on land in Antarctica begins to enter the oceans and it already has begun to enter the oceans, then that contributes to sea level rise. And we've seen around 25 centimetres of sea level rise since that pre-industrial period. A large, most of that comes from ice on land, so glaciers particularly, entering the oceans. But increasingly, Antarctica is starting to catch up with that. So ice on land in Antarctica, beginning to enter the oceans, is starting to drive large amounts of sea level rise. And of course, Antarctica is huge. It contains enough ice to raise global sea levels by 58 metres if it all uh, entered the oceans. And that, of course, would be a transformational amount of sea level rise. I think people quite often talk about glacial speeds being very, very slow. But it seems to me, from, from what I've read, that things are speeding up, accelerating. You know, the acceleration is a word that I'm, I'm hearing very, very frequently. And that's in the context of what's going on in Antarctica, but also in Greenland as well, where you know, the ice cap seems to me to be in, in genuine jeopardy. So I think these things are happening quickly. And probably one of the topics that's going to be discussed at, at the COP is what of our, our speed of response needs to be in relation to all of that. And I'm sure we'll get onto that in due course. What does the science say then about tackling climate change? I mean, what, where, where should we be directing our efforts? The science is very clear that we are not doing enough and that we are not doing it fast enough. And I think one thing to go back to from something you said earlier is that we need to do everything. We need to throw everything in the kitchen sink at this. It can't be one solution over all else. In the context of carbon capture and storage, for example, there's no point kind of just doing CCS because we need to do everything else as well at the same time. And I think for me, from a scientific perspective, it comes down to the order we do things in, our priorities. And I think the first priority has to be stop making the problem worse. So stop burning fossil fuels and stop putting more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That has to be the very first thing that we're tackling. That has to be, you know, the road to net zero. That's a big, basically what that's trying to do. That has to come first so that you're then having to, to capture and store less carbon. It's kind of like the idea of if you have a house and you're trying to make it net zero, the first thing you should be doing is making it extremely efficient so you're losing less heat or you're losing less energy. And then you can start thinking about how you would power it renewably because there's no point creating energy that's just going to get lost. It's exactly the same sort of principle here. We have to stop emitting so many greenhouse gases before we can start thinking about how we're drawing them down and storing them long term to mitigate the problem. So for me, it's we need to do all the solutions and a lot of them are going to come from sort of changing the way that we do things, which is a kind of fluffy way of saying that we need to get organisations, businesses, governments, individuals, charity, you know, every single part, every single cog in the, the societal kind of ecosystem to be working together in the same direction. And that has to come wholesale. It can't just be in specific sectors. It can't just be in specific regions. It has to be across the board. And 
that's essentially what the the science says. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm a physical scientist. My my main expertise is in seeing how things are changing rather than the actual solutions themselves. But from what I understand, it's basically an approach of all of it all at once. That's very 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 difficult, isn't it? Because I, I think you know, and as far as you have moral hazard with things, you've also got the, the concept of carbon hazard, and that's a particularly difficult concept, I would say, in developing or less developed countries, because energy is a prerequisite for everything that we do. I mean, we, we live in a highly digitalized world. We all need power for um, heating, air cooling, air conditioning, where I live in, in the Middle East. Energy is not a bad thing per se. It's how we get that energy, which I think is problematic. And the level of investment that's required in making that transition is huge i mean it's it's um you're talking trillions of trillions of dollars um, in, in order to to affect that and, and the, the scale of this is potentially quite overwhelming however as you say i think every little step counts every increment of a degree is something that should be targeted and certainly i think the net zero movement does that one of the things that i frequently hear is is that you know we don't blame farmers for the obesity crisis. So why should we be focusing our, our attention on the fossil fuel industry for climate change? And I have a certain degree of, of sympathy with that, because in a sense, it's down to everybody on the planet to be looking at their usage of fossil fuels and doing what they can to mitigate or indeed avoid that use. Um, but it's a very, very sensitive issue in the region. It's a very, very sensitive issue, I think, for discussions that are going, are going on in, in COP28. And how quickly that transition can be made, I think, is going to be a, a key element of that discussion. So moving on, how does climate science influence change? Because as far as I can see, the messaging has been very, very, very clear from climate scientists. They understand the process. The process has actually been understood for maybe 100 years or so. We've known about the power of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas for a long, long time seems to me that moving from a kind of scientific diagnosis of the problem to actually implementing action has been incredibly difficult. So can, can you tell us something about how climate science actually influences change and where you see the pitfalls and, and um, challenges there? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky problem. I guess it, it's actually very relevant to, to what you just said about the kind of difficulty of who who's responsible and the targeting of the fossil fuel industry, for example. I mean, in a very simplistic fashion, climate change or climate science is very clear that we need to move away from fossil fuels and that we cannot extract any more fossil fuels. If we want to make one and a half degrees, we cannot extract any more fossil fuels. They have to stay in the ground. So in that sense, it's very simple. It's a straightforward mathematical problem. And also in the same the same way, we we know what is going to happen if we burn those fossil fuels. We're going to heat our planet. We're going to heat our climate. All of the things that we've talked about, sea level rise, extreme events, ice loss, wildfires, floods, heat waves, all of these things, they're going to intensify. They're going to get more impactful. They're going to start harming people. And we know that. We've known that for years. We've known that for decades. We've known that for centuries. We know the basics of climate science. We have always, well, for centuries known how the burning of fossil fuels and how greenhouse gases can transform our climate. The problem is that we have followed the same approach for decades. You know, Jim Hansen testified in front of Congress in the US in the 1980s, and the same powerful message has been 
said time and time and time again. It's just not really, whilst people do pay attention to it, it's not having the kind of impact that we need. It's not having the an impact fast enough essentially and this is what the 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 science is very clear on we're not doing enough we're not doing it fast enough and in my mind i think we do need to do something differently so far science has been very much here's the evidence and we're very good at doing that you can't be policy prescriptive generally it's you know up to politicians to decide what to do with that evidence and unfortunately we're not doing enough so that means that we're not that politicians are not doing enough with that evidence um and obviously it's such a thorny problem it's so so systemic we can't just tackle climate change in the way that we could tackle other environmental problems because it's so intimately related with how we structure our societies how we live our lives you know like you were saying you can't just turn off energy we need energy to do all of those things and it's a problem of equity as well you know those who are least responsible for the problem are bearing the brunt of the impact but also those people have a right to live in countries that are developed to live in a way that matches up to the expectations that have been set by industrialized countries for example and it's not a straightforward problem and this is why we need a kind of for me an interdisciplinary approach it can't just be physical scientists like me saying this is a problem here's the evidence it has to come from social scientists who can talk about how those sorts of transformations should happen it should come from you know people in business it should come from governments it should come from leaders in all these different fields getting together which is why something like the cops are is so important and it's yeah scientifically it's there's a limit to what we can do as scientists we can only provide the evidence we can only say what we are qualified to say based on what we've observed and the research that is available and beyond that it's more of a political decision making process that takes that evidence and uses it and it's hard to say where the line is between you know what what scientists should be able to say from a scientific perspective i think for me I tend to take the opinion that I can say some things as a scientist and I can go a little bit further as an individual because I'm a human being too. And with an awareness of the work that I do and the evidence that I see and the evidence that I deal with, I can say, okay, without my scientist hat on, me as a human being, knowing what I know, this is what I think should happen. But as a scientist, I have to be very careful about what I say as a scientist because there's a limit to what we can say scientifically. So there's this interface and this kind of push and pull. And I do think that science is getting a little bit more kind of, well, the urgency is is demanding that we have to speak out more because we're not doing enough and we're not doing it fast enough. So there's a movement towards slightly more vocal interaction, perhaps. Yeah, I think I think nobody wants to be controversial, do they? And I think there is some embedded reticence in anything that anybody says. But I kind of share your view that people who are across these issues and understand it. The science is settled and we need to speak up and people need to have some agency in this. But what I would say is what I've noticed over the last few years is that various international bodies are beginning to really implement measurable steps. So for example, there are going to be new reporting standards that are being developed by the International Financial Reporting Standards Organization. There are numerous um, stock exchanges throughout the world 
who've introduced voluntary, some moving to mandatory reporting in relation to sustainability. There's a very, very big movement in relation to hardwiring net zero key performance indicators in contracts. That's clearly the direction of travel. And the risk to businesses is if they don't get on board with that, they're going to end up with a, a class of uninvestable stranded assets. So I think the zeitgeist, as it were, is 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 moving in the direction that, that, that it needs to. And the science is settled. I mean, I think it has been for some time. And the, the, the question now is, well, how quickly do we need to act to counter what is an accelerating and imminent threat, which is why we have things like COP28 going on. So I think, you know, there is a lot going on. And, and I think individuals have got some agency in all of this. But as you say, Ella, I mean, I, I think it really is incumbent on governments and leadership within corporates to really push this agenda within our organizations. So, I mean, in terms of that, obviously, we've got a COP coming up in Dubai shortly. What are your particular hopes for this COP? Yeah, I think one thing that I am keen on is the kind of presentation of this, the the mutual benefits of tackling climate change. It doesn't have to always be about sacrifice it doesn't always have to be about we're stopping doing stuff because that's I think a lot of the narrative and what the discussion has been about and leadership within corporates or governments or you know from the people who have the most responsibility or have the largest carbon footprints you know people or organizations I should say that has to be a really important thing that pushes forwards change but then it's also very important to remember it's not just about sacrifice it's there's so much to be gained from taking action you know when it comes to energy security or when it comes to restoring ecosystems to uh, people's health and well-being there's so much that we can win on this and that's something that i hope for cop 28 that to come out something that people can focus on obviously we have to get down to the very important nitty-gritty of ironing out how the uh, there's so many decisions that are hanging over from previous uh, summits but we need some real concrete action on climate mitigation so reducing emissions from net zero pledges all of that that needs huge amounts of work to actually enforce we need still to to finalize you know financial details of how that loss and damage fund is is directly funded how it's how funds is distributed to make sure that there is equity in the response. I do hope that there is leadership on the kind of reducing emissions side of things rather than there being this distraction of it being about carbon capture and storage, because I do think that has to be first and foremost about reducing emissions. It has to be stopping making the problem worse rather than focusing on a solution, which is undoubtedly part of the solution, but not the only part of the solution and that's what I really want to come out of COP I want there to be real real terms concrete action on who's going to do what how they're going to do it in terms of cutting greenhouse gas emissions and concentrations in the atmosphere before there is any discussion of the I guess it's rearranging chairs on the Titanic if we're just talking about uh, different methods of offsetting Um, I I, I think it's all of the above isn't it as we've been discussing I think carbon capture is very, very interesting and potentially game-changing piece of technology. But on its own, it's not enough. And, yeah, there's a long way to go, you know, in terms of making it scalable 
and you know the question has to be asked well who's going to who's going to pay for that so carbon capture great but you know all of the above is required and that includes pushing net zero I and mean, i think the interesting thing that's going to come out of cop as well is the global stock take which um, you know they're going to report on they're going to look at where people are in relation to achieving the targets um, in terms of emissions and in terms of contributions, that's going to be pretty fascinating. But I, I think, you know, action is going to have to accelerate because it seems to me that the science is telling us that the, the crisis is accelerating. It's something, isn't it, when you've got the Secretary General of the United Nations talking about global boiling. I mean, he's definitely not being reticent there. And I don't think he's being controversial either. I mean, I think that's where the science is is leading us. Any final thoughts, Ella, on that point? Yeah, the science is entirely settled. I think what what we're seeing now is different disagreements in like how it's communicated and how it's translated into actionable policy. And I think that, you know, as a scientist, there's not really much more that I can add of value apart from illustrating the many ways in which our climate is changing, which is a pretty sad task, actually. And communicating the urgency and that acceleration is is a really important part of that. And in the hope that it will spur further action, which is in the hands of the people in power. So politicians and, and leaders in various different realms. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I really recommend your YouTube channel, Dr. Gilbs. It's very, very insightful, and I, I know you speak to a number of interesting other scientists in the field. Thank you again so much for joining us on this series of podcast. I hope that listeners found this useful and insightful, and I wish you the best for COP28 and your future endeavours in Antarctica. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company.